Hi, this is Shiva Raman again from Johns Hopkins University. So today I'd like to talk a little bit about the CT imaging of solid pancreatic tumors. Now we're gonna begin by talking briefly about protocol optimization and specifically how we image patients with solid pancreatic tumors at Hopkins. After that, I'm gonna talk about two big categories of solid pancreatic lesions. We'll start with pancreatic adenocarcinoma, which is the one I think we're most worried about. And then we'll talk about pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Now for both of these lesions, we'll talk about staging, how to determine resectability, and some common mimics that you may come across in your practice. Now I think it's vital that when you're imaging the pancreas that you have proper CT technique. And it's important from a number of different facets. First of all, having the right technique is critical in terms of lesion identification. Many of these tumors, regardless of whether it's a pancreatic adenocarcinoma or a neuroendocrine tumor, it can be very difficult to identify them if you don't have the right CT technique in place. Secondly, even if you identify a lesion, if you don't have the right phases of contrast, you may not be able to distinguish an adenocarcinoma from a neuroendocrine tumor. I also think it's important that if you don't have multiplanar reformats, good technique, you may have difficulty differentiating a pancreatic from a peripancreatic lesion, and that's a common source of confusion. But just as importantly, once you've identified the tumor, having good technique allows you to adequately perform local regional staging, identify distant metastatic disease, and give the surgeon some information as to whether a lesion is resectable or not. Now, at Johns Hopkins, our standard CT protocol for pancreatic lesions is dual phase. So any suspected pancreatic pathology is going to get both an arterial and a venous phase imaging. Now, the arterial phase is performed at a fixed delay of roughly 25 to 30 seconds, whereas the venous phase is done at a fixed delay of roughly 50 to 60 seconds. Now, I think it's important here that you remember that you really want to avoid giving positive oral contrast. That contrast can pool in the stomach and the duodenum. You can end up getting a lot of streak artifact that could potentially obscure a subtle mass in the pancreatic head, and at the very least is going to interfere with your 3D post-processing algorithms. At Hopkins, we give these patients water or volumen, actually most often water, and we try to give that immediately before the injection so as to distend the duodenum in the stomach and really allow you to distinguish a duodenal or a pancreatic or duodenal groove lesion from a true pancreatic mass. Now, what's the importance of having dual phase technique? And specifically, what is the importance of each of the two phases? Now, the arterial phase, I think, is really important in terms of differentiating vascular lesions from standard pancreatic adenocarcinoma. If you don't have an arterial phase, not only are you going to have trouble distinguishing neuroendocrine tumors from adenocarcinoma, you may not even see the neuroendocrine tumor in the first place. Secondly, not only is it important for identifying the primary tumor, if you don't have the arterial phase, you're not going to be able to see metastases, whether it's in the liver or hypervascular lymph nodes. Secondly, adenocarcinomas are mostly going to be more conspicuous on the venous phase images. But that being said, every once in a while you'll come across an adenocarcinoma that's slightly more conspicuous on the arterial phase, so it can be helpful in terms of distinguishing those lesions. And then finally, Arterial phase images provide you with vascular maps, allow you to determine vascular tumor involvement of the vasculature, and really give your surgeons a good sense for whether a tumor is resectable or not. Now, the venous phase images are, of course, very important. The vast majority of pancreatic adenocarcinomas are going to be most conspicuous on the venous phase. So if you don't have a venous phase as part of your protocol, you're going to miss tumors. Secondly, the venous phase images are critical for identifying lesions in the liver, identifying local regional lymphadenopathy, and, and determining involvement of other solid organs. And just as importantly, you really want to be able to figure out if that tumor is involving the portal veins and the SMV, how much it's involving it, are those vessels patent, because that has a real role to play in terms of determining a patient's resectability. Now, <clears throat> as all of you know, 
we are strong believers at Johns Hopkins in the power of 3D post-processing. And I think 3D post-processing is vitally important when you're dealing with pancreatic lesions. We utilize MIP images, vascular mapping techniques, volume rendering, and of course, we always utilize multiplanar reformats in every case. Now, we found these techniques to be incredibly important in identifying subtle metastases, identifying tumors that are really difficult to see on the source axial images, and of course, identifying subtle vascular involvement that determines a patient's resectability. I'll show you several examples during the course of this lecture where the 3D post-processing really plays an important role in the ultimate diagnosis and staging of these patients. So why don't we start by talking about pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Now, there are over 28,000 cases each year, so it's only about 2% of all cancers. And I think sometimes working at Hopkins where we're a major referral center for pancreatic cancer. I kind of feel like this is a much bigger cancer worldwide than it actually is. It's not that common. But nevertheless, it is about 95% of all pancreatic exocrine malignancies. And despite being relatively rare, it is the fourth leading ca uh, cause of cancer mortality. And that's because it has an extraordinarily poor prognosis. There's a less than 5% survival at five years, and really less than 20% of these patients are ultimately gonna be candidates for curative therapy. Now, typically, pancreatic adenocarcinomas have a standard set of imaging features. They're going to be hypodense, they're going to be poorly marginated, they're going to be infiltrative. They have a tendency to infiltrate posteriorly into the retroperitoneum. Now, these are not going to be well-circumscribed masses. In fact, often you're going to have trouble identifying clear borders to the lesion. And in many cases, I have trouble giving the clinicians a really accurate measurement. Now, these lesions have a tendency to infiltrate posteriorly, they often are going to encase vessels, and they very often, particularly in the pancreatic head, will involve the CBD and the pancreatic duct. So here's a pretty typical example of a pancreatic adenocarcinoma. It's hypodense, it's infiltrative, has very poor margins, and notice how it's obstructing the pancreatic duct with upstream pancreatic atrophy. Now, in most cases, those signs are going to be enough to identify the lesion. But you always want to take into account secondary signs as well, which are very important in that small percentage of pancreatic cancers which are isoattenuating the pancreatic parenchyma on both the arterial and venous phases. Now, in those cases where you have trouble seeing the primary mass itself, these secondary signs are going to allow you to identify a tumor that you may not be able to see in actuality. So you're going to look for dilation of the pancreatic duct, abrupt cutoff of a dilated pancreatic duct at the level of a lesion, biliary ductal dilatation with abrupt cutoff. Usually there's going to be upstream pancreatic atrophy with loss of pancreatic bulk upstream from the tumor, and of course, abnormal contour of the pancreas. So here's an example. In this case, there's clearly a mass sitting at the level of the pancreatic head, but notice how that bile duct is dilated and there's abrupt narrowing of the duct at the level of the lesion. Here's another example, or here another couple of examples. Notice the dilated duct. That is clearly abnormal. That duct abruptly narrows at the level of the pancreatic head, and you really can't see the mass in either of these examples, but you know that there has to be something there. When I see a dilated duct which abruptly narrows anywhere in the pancreas, that is a tumor until proven otherwise. Even if I can't see the mass on CT or MR, that dilated duct with abrupt cutoff means that that patient has to get an endoscopic ultrasound to identify an occult lesion. Remember, this is a finding that you can't just let go. Anytime I see secondary, those secondary signs that I talked about earlier, I'm going to interrogate that pancreas carefully for a mass, and if I can't find it, I'm going to refer that patient on for a more sensitive test. Now, CT is actually an excellent modality for identifying the vast majority of pancreatic cancers. 
the sensitivity for pancreatic cancer is now probably about 96% in the most recent generation of scanners. And that's improved over older generation scanners where the literature suggested that we had a sensitivity of roughly 88 to 91%. And that's obviously taking into account thin collimation, the improved spatial and temporal resolution of our latest generation of scanners, and obviously the increasing use of multiplanary formats and 3D imaging. Overall, I'd say that the vast, vast majority of pancreatic cancers are now identifiable on CT. Now, what's the goal in terms of creating your protocols to identify pancreatic cancer? And really the goal is to maximize the difference in attenuation or enhancement between the pancreas and the tumor. You want the pancreas to enhance as much as possible, and you want to juxtapose that hyper-enhancing pancreas against the relatively hypovascular, hypo-enhancing pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Now, in general, there are three phases that you can really think about. There's going to be the arterial phase, which, as we mentioned, is typically going to be about 25 to 30 seconds. The portal venous phase, which, as I mentioned earlier, again, is about 55 to 60 seconds. And then in the middle, there's something called the pancreatic phase, which is not as well defined, but probably somewhere in that 35, 40, 45 second range. Now, if you look at the data in the literature, the pancreatic phase is actually the time at which you get peak enhancement of the pancreas, as you can see on this chart by Drazen et al. in emergency radiology very recently. And so, theoretically, that pancreatic phase, somewhere between 35 to 45 seconds, is going to be the time at which you get peak pancreatic enhancement and probably peak conspicuity of hypodense pancreatic lesions, like pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Now, for all practical purposes, even though the pancreatic phase is going to be the most specific and sensitive, the portal venous phase is going to catch the vast majority of lesions that we're looking to identify. And there's really not going to be a statistically significant difference between identifying pancreatic lesions in the portal venous phase and identifying them in the pancreatic phase. And so that's why we tend to acquire just arterial and venous phases rather than adding on that third pancreatic phase. And if you look at this article by Fletcher et al. many years ago in radiology, they tried comparing the portal venous phase with the pancreatic phase for the identification of pancreatic adenocarcinomas and really didn't find a huge difference in terms of lesion identification. Now, once you've identified the lesion and you've decided that it's most likely a pancreatic adenocarcinoma, your job isn't done. The next step is to determine whether or not that patient is resectable. You want to give the surgeons all the information they need to decide whether or not that patient should be taken to the operating room. Now, first of all, I always tell our residents and fellows this when they're putting together their dictations. I try to never use the term resectable or unresectable in my dictations. You know, the determination of resectability really depends a great deal on where you practice, even within an institution, which surgeon you're dealing with, and obviously on patient factors, pancreatic cancer clinic, et cetera, et cetera. So really, given that variability, I try to give the uh, physician some information to help determine whether or not the patient is resectable by their standards, but I try not to tell them that the patient is resectable or not. Now, determining resectability is really critical. If a tumor is correctly determined to be resectable, then your survival is not great, but at least 15 to 20 percent at five years. But if you incorrectly determine that a tumor is resectable and it turns out to be unresectable at surgery, a patient's survival after a Whipple procedure is really no better than chemoradiation. So in other words, you've put the patient through a really big-time surgery with all its associated morbidity and mortality for absolutely nothing. So it's critical that you make that determination of resectability correctly, prospectively, before the patient is taken to the OR. Now, when you're trying to determine resectability, the first step is to identify any sites of distant metastatic disease, local regional lymph nodes, liver metastases, carcinomatosis, and lung metastases. Now, when it comes to lymphadenopathy, I try not to worry about it so much. 
First of all, local regional lymph nodes almost never preclude a patient from going to the operating room. Only in cases where you have extensive bulky adenopathy or lymphadenopathy distant from the surgical bed are you actually going to prevent a patient from going to surgery. If you're seeing a few 1 centimeter, 1.2 centimeter peripancreatic lymph nodes, that doesn't matter because those could still be reactive and they're almost invariably going to be sampled at surgery and resected. Now, on the other hand, if I see big lymph nodes in the pelvis, if I see distant lymph nodes in the mesentery, well, that's important to mention because that could potentially preclude the patient from undergoing a Whipple procedure or a distal pancreatectomy. Now, overall, we as radiologists are actually quite poor in terms of determining which lymph nodes are actually metastatic, and that's because, for the most part, we're relying on size criteria which are incredibly nonspecific. But just remember, it doesn't really matter. These nodes are invariably going to be sampled and resected. Now, Lymphadenopathy may not be a big deal, but distant metastatic disease will absolutely make a patient unresectable, and that's one of the reasons why venous phase images are absolutely critical. Now, the most common site of metastasis is, of course, going to be the liver, and I'd say almost always the liver is going to be the first site of metastatic disease before it goes to the lung or elsewhere. Now, the arterial phase images aren't that useful when you're trying to identify liver metastases, but that being said, once in a while you'll see a profusion abnormality or maybe a small transient hepatic attenuation difference, and that may be a clue that there's a small liver metastasis that you need to look carefully for on the venous phase images. But for the most part, venous phase images are going to be critical. And we're pretty good in terms of identifying liver lesions that are over a, centi a centimeter in size, and we're also pretty specific. The problem is that when you get lesions under a centimeter, we're not quite as good, and we're certainly not good at differentiating a true metastasis from something benign, like an hemangioma or uh, even a you know, complicated cyst. Now, liver metastases are the most common, but I'd say second to the liver is going to be carcinomatosis. And for the most part, we are not good at identifying carcinomatosis on CT. Our sensitivity is probably no better than about 25 35%. And I'd say in many cases where the patient is found to have carcinomatosis on C on, uh, at surgery, I go back, I look at the CT scan, and I still can't say anything definitively retrospectively. But that being said, if I see ascites, that's certainly a concerning feature. If I see any nodularity, stippling, irregularity of the omentum, again, that's a concerning feature. And you want to at least raise the possibility if there's anything that potentially could raise the possibility of carcinomatosis. So here's a case where I don't think any of us would mistake this for anything but horrible metastatic disease. Big pancreatic tumor, multiple hypodense, poorly marginated lesions in the liver. This patient is clearly unresectable. This patient would never go to the operating room for a Whipple procedure. Now, here's a finding that I think is often not appreciated, but I think should be. This patient has a pancreatic cancer. Notice the ascites. Notice that stippling, that nodularity, that irregularity of the omentum. This patient clearly has carcinomatosis and shouldn't go anywhere near the operating room. When I see that nodularity, I have to raise the possibility of carcinomatosis in my dictation. Now, once you've determined whether or not a patient has metastatic disease, the next step is to determine vascular involvement because that's going to be another important part of the algorithm in terms of determining whether a patient has resectable disease. Now, in the old days, for a patient to be resectable, you pretty much had to have no major arterial or venous involvement. Specifically, you couldn't have involvement of the SMA, the celiac artery, the hepatic artery, the SMV, or the portal vein. Now, that was the old days. Nowadays, particularly over the last decade, we've seen the rise of this new category of disease known as borderline resectable disease. So patients can now have pretty significant involvement of both the arterial and the venous vasculature and potentially still be surgical candidates. Now, this is actually a, this uh, chart comes from an article by Varadachari et al. from 
the Annals of Surgical Oncology in 2006. They're at MD Anderson, and they detail their particular delineation of this borderline resectable category. And so you can have some involvement of the SMA, some involvement of the celiac hepatic artery. You can have significant involvement of the SMV in the portal vein of the confluence, provided that there's still surgical options for reconstruction. Now, I don't think it's important for any of you to memorize this particular chart, because really, the specific categorization of borderline resectable disease is really going to depend on the specific practice you're at, your surgeons, et cetera, et cetera. But that being said, I think that's why it's so important that you give your surgeons a very specific, detailed account of how exactly these five vessels are involved by tumor. The SMV, the portal vein, the celiac, the hepatic artery, and the SMA. Every dictation, I make it a point in my impression to talk about these five vessels. First of all, on the arterial side, I want to give the surgeon a clear account of whether the tumor is involving less than or greater than 180 degrees of an artery circumference. If there's over 180 degrees of an artery circumference, that patient has a much more difficult time going to the operating room than a patient who has less than 180 degrees. I'm really going to look for that preserved fat plane around each of those three major arterial structures. Now, for the portal vein in the SMV, I really want to give the clinician some sense for whether it's just abutting the vein, it's encasing it, it's narrowing it, or occluding it. Because nowadays, if there's any surgical options for reconstruction, portal vein and SMV involvement isn't that big a deal. Surgeons have all kinds of different means of performing venous reconstructions, jump grafts, venous interposition grafts, etc., etc. And if there's any option that a, a venous reconstruction could be technically feasible, then these patients still potentially could be borderline resectable. Now, typically in my experience, most of these patients at Hopkins who are borderline resectable are not going to go straight to the operating room. They're usually going to get a few rounds of chemotherapy and radiation, they're going to sterilize the tumor bed, and then they're going to go to the operating room at some later date. So here's an example of a patient who has significant portal vein and SMV involvement. Notice how there's encasement, narrowing of that SMV all the way up to the confluence. Now, in the old days, that was clearly unresectable. But if a surgeon at Hopkins tells that this, that this patient potentially could be reconstructed with some kind of an interposition graft or reconstruction, then this patient theoretically could be borderline resectable. Here's another example. Clear involvement, clear narrowing at the portal SMV confluence, but this is no longer unresectable disease. This patient still potentially could be resectable if there are technical options for reconstruction. Now notice in this example that the splenic vein is significantly narrowed as well. That absolutely does not matter. Remember, the only venous structures that matter here are going to be the portal vein and the SMV. You don't need to worry about the splenic vein at all. Now here's an example where the celiac trunk is completely encased, 360 degrees. Now, even though our surgeons are increasingly becoming liberal about arterial involvement, I really don't know of any institution that's resecting patients nowadays with this level of celiac trunk involvement. Here's another example, this time the SMA. Long segment of involvement, 360 degree encasement, lots of narrowing, beating, irregularity. Once again, there's almost no surgeon across this country that's going to actually resect someone with this degree of SMA involvement. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Involvement of the celiac, hepatic artery, and SMA is what's really important for determining a patient's resectability. Other vessels really don't matter. In this case, notice how the GDA is encased. Absolutely irrelevant. The GDA is going to come out with the surgical specimen. You don't need to worry about the GDA. You don't need to worry about the splenic artery or other smaller vessels. It's those three major vessels that you need to comment on in every one of your dictations. So how good are we? Well, I think CT is actually very good for determining unresectability. The positive predictive value for unresectability is, I think, um, is acceptable, probably 89 to 100%.
The problem is that we're less effective in determining which patients are really capable of an R0 resection. So who's truly resectable? About 60 to 91% of patients who are deemed to be resectable on CT are ultimately found to be unresectable at surgery. In fact, 25% of, only 25% of patients who are deemed resectable prospectively are ultimately found to be resectable when they're taken to the operating room. And so what are we missing? We're missing small liver metastases. We're missing subtle vascular involvement that's just not perceptible on the CT scan. And of course, we're missing those small peritoneal implants that we're just not very good at picking up. Now, those are all, so far we've talked about the features that are important to identify pancreatic adenocarcinoma. But what are the features that should suggest a diagnosis other than pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma? Now, there are, there are a few things that are going to at least raise some doubt in my mind that I'm not just dealing with a standard run-of-the-mill pancreatic adenocarcinoma. First of all, if I see a tumor in the pancreatic head without common bile duct or pancreatic ductal dilatation, that's quite rare. Unless that lesion is tucked in there in the unsnet process, there's almost always going to be some pancreatic duct or CBD involvement. Secondly, if I see a big mass sitting in the pancreatic head, but there's no upstream pancreatic atrophy, again, that's very unusual you've got to think about some other possibilities. Typically, pancreatic adenocarcinomas are going to encase vessels, and they're going to narrow and attenuate them. If I see tumor that's surrounding vasculature, whether it's arterial or venous, but there's absolutely no narrowing, there's no attenuation, again, you've got to think about something else. And then finally, adenocarcinoma, in my experience, very rarely gives you lots of lymph nodes. If I see big-time lymphadenopathy, that's not something that I typically see with run-of-the-mill pancreatic adenocarcinoma, and I'm going to consider some other entities, whether it's lymphoma or other things. So those are the atypical features that should suggest something other than pancreatic adenocarcinoma. When we come back in my next talk, we're going to talk about some of the mimics of adenocarcinoma that you should be thinking about when you're interpreting these CT scans. So I'll see you in a few minutes. Thanks a lot. Bye.